But I guess I, I needed to write the book because I really struggled with the way the culture looks at adoption. And as you said, as we are as calling us chosen babies, like we're the lucky ones. And, and the cost for being ad- adopted is, is compulsory gratitude. I mean, you're supposed to be very, very grateful. And that's another part of it. There's no room for questioning. There's no room for being unhappy about it. Welcome to About Your Mother. This is your host, Jennifer Griffith. Welcome to the fourth episode in our series, What Happened Then? This conversation focuses on the voice of an adoptee, Jan Beatty. Her mother is a girl who went away. With adoption, there are perspectives, varying points of view filled with deep wells of emotion that are elusive until someone from their seat at the table puts words to their adoption story. Jan is one of those people. In her book, American Bastard, she takes us through a stream of consciousness on what it feels to ache from abandonment as a baby, to seek your name, to claim your identity, and to question if adoption is truly about saving. Jan's voice is as powerful as it is crucial to seeing adoption in its entirety. Here's our conversation and enjoy the listen. Jan, welcome to About Your Mother, Where Your Story Begins. I am so honored to have you. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm really excited about this. And we've been able to talk a little bit before this, but not much. So this is all um, getting to know you. And uh, I'm honored that you wanted to do this. Well, your voice, I read your book, American Bastard. and But this is a book of heart and voice and a very um, distinct voice that I think, as as you know, I found you online and listened to you and, and read some of your work and realized that yours is a, in this whole adoption story of the different players, yours is a very distinct and powerful voice. And so I'm very honored to have you. And you had the great idea, which I have yet to do with any author, of doing a reading before we get started in the discussion. So do you want to start there? Sure. Yeah. Kind of grounding for me to start that way. So this is American Bastard, which is a memoir. And I'll start with the dedication of the book. This is for the lost ones who never knew where they came from. This is against the ones who pretended the loss never happened. I use a lot of quotes, a lot of epigraphs in the book. Towards the beginning, there's a quote from the amazing poet Wanda Coleman, and this is her. I stole it back because it was mine from the get-go. All shook up, a rumble mama burped, and there I was. Take these rhythms as evidence, my splendid rock and roll. So I was born in a place called Rosalia Asylum and Maternity Hospital in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. It used to be called a home for unwed mothers, which is a pretty dated way to talk about it. But this first very short section is about imagining that asylum. It's called After the Tearing and Rolling. After the Tearing and Rolling, you're an infant somewhere in a crib in a room full of cribs. Someone is taking care of you. You don't know who. Who is the person who picks you up? Is it a woman? Is it a nun? There is no story in sight, no same loving face, blood of my blood face. The smells, the feel of the rolling and tearing are gone, gone where? No face who has your face, no way of knowing who is who, what hands are these? Why are they different every time? There is no bonding taking place. 
The story is fractured here and forever after. Then strangers come to gaze at you, touch you, wonder about you. They decide to pluck you out of there and make you theirs. These strangers will take your name away and hide it. The government will cooperate. It will take months and months for this baby trade to be completed. A baby in exchange for money. Meanwhile, someone is feeding you. Is it a kind person? What do they smell like? You will never know these hands again. You will be taken to a strange place. People will start calling you the lucky one, the chosen baby. No one sees that your story is gone, that you are being handed off like a football. From now on, everyone will pretend that your first story never existed. They will act and want you to act as if you are one of them, their blood, their faces, their world. You know that to survive, you will have to do this. You will have to pass. But your new mother has dark hair and brown eyes. Your father has dark hair. Their noses are not like yours. Your white blonde hair shines sickly like the odd light in a bad painting. Later, you look at your cousins. They have beautiful long eyelashes, all of them the same. You value how others resemble others. You long for it. In first grade, you refuse to make a family tree. Your parents and teacher suggest you make one based on your new family. You refuse. So that's very near, that's not the intro to the book, but that's very near the beginning. And so powerful and so raw. This idea of, and it's prevalent throughout your book, of being chosen versus what the reality is, is that it's, all, it's a stolen identity right? At a very young age. And it seems you were very in tune to this idea as a child. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write the book and how it's connected to your story? Well, I mean, as a child, you know, I was, I was struggled quite a bit, you know, feeling, you know, out of place. Uh, many, many kids could say that. But I think I was six years old when I was told that I was adopted but with no information. And it was a tough childhood, again, as many people could say. But I guess I, I needed to write the book because I really struggled with the way the culture looks at adoption. And as you said, as we are as calling us chosen babies, like we're the lucky ones, and, and the cost for being ad- adopted is is compulsory gratitude. I mean, you're supposed to be very, very grateful. And that's another part of it. There's no room for questioning. There's no room for being unhappy about it. So it's a primary lifelong trauma that no one puts in those terms or very few people. And the reason for that, I think, well, there's many, but one reason is because it's a hard reality to face. You know, I knew I was really lost and alone as a child, but I I certainly couldn't articulate it. And it took me many years to get to that realization and uh, a lot of years of therapy, many years of trouble to get there. And I know many adoptees who don't want to go there. And, you know, I don't blame them. It's not an easy path to go down. But I felt really compelled to find my birth parents. I just needed to know who I was. 
And uh, I think that's something that everybody deserves. Agreed. So on this journey of finding them, if you don't mind sharing the details of that, and also did you find that you did gain a greater sense of your identity? It, it did help to meet them. <laughs> I mean, it, it took, you know, it took 10 years to find my birth mother. It was not easy. It was a closed adoption system when I came up. And some of it is still closed. So it was hard to get to find out where to even look. And when I tried to get a pre-amended birth certificate, that was very hard to get. I would get a birth certificate with Jan Beatty on it. You know, it's not my real name. So it took a while. And then I found out I was adopted through Catholic Social Services. I went there for an interview and my birth mother did not want to meet me. So that was, that was hard. I have friends who went to locate their birth parent and immediately, you know, they, they said, no, what was that like for you as an experience? Well, by that point, it was like more of the same. You know, I, 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 I lowered my expectations a lot. I mean, that was sort of a good thing to learn. Uh, Not fun, but it was a good thing to learn, but I knew I would keep going. You know, I know I would get there no matter what. But the the challenge was more the social workers, the culture. I knew I couldn't get angry with a social worker or they would script me or write something down that I was angry or had, a, had some kind of <laughs> psychological problem. So I just had to say thank you and walk away. It's In the book, it says that my birth mother saw a, an Oprah show on adoption and decided That's- that she would meet me, which is... You know, good and bad. You know, I mean, good that Oprah did that, but I wish that I had, as as a blood daughter, I wish that I had that kind of weight to have her want to meet me. But yeah, so but it was, it wasn't a great experience, but it was really it was a piece, a missing piece, and the same with my birth father. I was didn't have a relationship with either of them, you know. So it wasn't like the big, happy hallmark story. <laughs> which it rarely is. I have a friend who calls it adoption porn, you know, where the bus pulls away and there's, you know, <laughs> balloons and everything like that. And and that is not the story for most. No. Uh, it's a, as, as you say so eloquently, it's, it's extremely complicated and it's a, it's a hard struggle to search for this identity that was buried not only by your birth parents, but by institutions, which were incredibly cruel and my adoptive parents. Yeah, true. And how was that with your adoptive parents when you did go on the search? I didn't tell them that I was doing it. I mean, everyone has a different relationship with their parents and every adoptee has a different relationship with their adoptive parents. I mean, I had a really good relationship with my adoptive father. He was he was great. My adoptive mother, no. But I really I clearly have a different relationship with family, with the idea of family. And uh, I felt like it was no one's business what I was doing. I felt like it was my business. And so I didn't, I didn't, I told very few people. I told a friend who was going with me to meet my birth mother and birth father. But, you know, I was afraid of judgment. I, I was a mess, really, emotionally. So I was trying to protect myself. This had a big impact on your life, internalizing all of these emotions and uh, hats off to you and celebrating you for your sobriety as well. That's a, that's an accomplishment. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think, 
I've been in therapy for many, many years and will always be. I believe in it for everybody, not just for adoptees. But yeah, I, I don't think I'd be here without that. It's interesting as a, as a mom, who I, as someone who has a mom who was an orphan, as well as a birth mother that surrendered and then to, then kept me because her societal situation was more acceptable, let's say, at the time. It was interesting because I, she was so detached. I can see that now as an adult. She was so detached from emotions. And I always thought that was because she was orphaned. She had her parents and then they died tragically. And I always thought, well, it's because of that. You know, she's living with her parent ghost. And what I ended up realizing when she told me that I had a brother and she had found him was that's actually what I was living with was this birth mom who no matter, I always felt like I wasn't enough. And I know you write about this, but what I realize now as an adult and a mom myself, I wasn't enough to fill her void of what she let go. Well, sure. Yeah. It's not your job to do that. But I didn't realize that, that your mother knew who she was, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, which I mean, it's terrible that she lost her parents, but it's good that she knew who she was. I mean, I think it's that's one of the huge holes is not knowing your name, not knowing who you are. I mean, I didn't learn my name until I was in my 30s. And not knowing anything is like walking around in a dream, you know. The language that, that you used about surrendering, and that's part of the institutional language and maybe your choice, but I have trouble with a lot of the the language choices of surrendering and what's the other one they use? Oh, please talk about it because every guest I I have, no, I want to hear about this from you. Really surrendering every guest I have on this category has different language for it. I used to say relinquish. Yeah, that's that's worse. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me, give it to me, give it to me, Jan, give me your, give me your take on it. (laughs) Well, yeah, relinquish seems to be the popular one. And I felt like that's really, it's much too nice for what's happening, as is surrender. I mean, I feel like it, it just, you know, makes it sound much more nice than it is. It's just, why doesn't anyone say they gave their child away? You know, why doesn't anyone say it? You know, I mean, that's what happened. And, but no one uses that language. Surrender, that sounds like there's not choice. Or relinquish sounds you know, much nicer than it is. So, you know, that's just, I think a lot of adoptees feel that way. You know? Yeah. Tell me when you, when you give your readings and talk to adoptees in this very clear way, what, what are some of the things that you hear about how this connects to their story? What do you mean? How, what connects? How your take on being given away, you know, how many people do you find feel this way? Oh, well, I've, I've done some uh, interviews and podcasts with groups actually around the world, some in Canada, some I did one in South Africa, which is the great thing about the internet, but some, a number of them that were adoptees only. And that's a very different feel in those, in those meetings, uh, much more open. The adoptees were much more openly angry about things and appreciative of my work. But although one thing I learned in these meetings is that many adoptees are anti-adoption and I'm, I'm not. I um, Say more about that. 
Yeah, that was surprising to me. I don't see why I would be against adoption. You know, if someone wants to do that, that's great. You know, as my issue is with the how we look about look at it and talk about it. So that's why I wrote the book is to encourage people to imagine that they're not as we as you said they're not the saviors they're not making everything beautiful instead of saying you know I'm your mother now I'm your new mother they might want to think about saying I'm sorry for your loss it's never going to be all right you know acknowledge the it's like a death acknowledge the the loss and just be real about it and people you know people as you know don't like to be real that much no <laughs> I'm on a mission I'm on a mission. <laughs> I think we all are, right? There's a group of us that are like, no, just tell it like it is. It yeah. can be ugly and painful, but it, it's so much, you're so much freer if you're just being honest about it. To your point, what you just said in your book, the sentences an adoptive mother need to say to her adopted child, I can never be your mother. I can never fill that hole. I'm sorry for your loss. I think that's so poignant and brilliant because nobody does that to your point. It's, it's, yeah. aren't you lucky? And you can't you have anything to worry about now. I'm here. Right. When you're I, safe. When I, the one I like is when I saw, when I saw him or her, I knew he was mine. I'm like, he's not yours. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's like an ownership thing. And I really have an issue with that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you, you can't go out and buy a baby and, and then own it. I mean, that's what it, there's some of that going on. And that's obscene, you know, and not okay. It's not okay. And it's not talked about in the way that it needs to be talked about. And there's so many people, uh, even just friends that I know, I'm telling them about this podcast series I'm doing, and they have no idea and no idea. And I think the only thing that's bringing it to the surface in some way, not to the way that it needs to, are these genealogy tests, you know, that people are doing and suddenly... (laughs) You know, you have this random relative pop up and and then there is a mother who swallowed her secret who has to tell about what she did prior to a marriage and having her own kids. Yeah. And, and that also, I mean, when I met my birth mother, she was full of shame and was crying. And, you know, I we had very different agendas. She she wanted to apologize and know that I had a good life and I wanted to find out who my father was. It was so hard to get information from her. And I understand in those times there was a lot of cultural pressure, but, and I still think she had a choice. She had a choice. And I'm I'm not upset necessarily that she gave me away. I'm upset that she wouldn't tell me my name Mm. and where I came from. I'm not looking for the family. I'm looking for the story, the truth, so that I can have a medical history. You know, that has affected me and will continue to affect me. For example, I uh, had to get a hysterectomy 10 years ago or so. And, uh, you know, I don't know the medical history. I had to make decisions based on that. And I said, just take everything out. You know, I mean, what am I going to say? I don't have the information. So I'm, I'm not happy about that. And so it, 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 it impacts people and their bodies, their lives, and but their psyches. And I don't think enough people think about it that way, you know, no. the long term. They just don't. And and your book certainly makes it very clear 
with beautiful language about what that feels like. Your father, this was really interesting finding him. I do feel that although it was complicated, you can talk about finding him, but I felt this almost respect isn't the right word, a kinship with him, even though it wasn't the most ideal situation. Did I read that wrong? No, no. You know, so time had passed. My birth father was a Canadian hockey player who won three Stanley Cups. And uh, so that was kind of exciting. When I met him, I met him in Bolton, Massachusetts, when he was a golf pro. And I ambushed him because I thought he would never meet with me. And he didn't remember my birth mother which was not surprising, but I just liked him. But I think part of my ease with him was that I already had the story. You know, I like, I, and people have said, you know, you, you're too tough on your birth mother in the book and, and, and not the birth father. And I don't agree with that. I mean, I like, I liked my birth mother also. It was just that she, if you can imagine sitting there with someone who you're meeting for the first time, my birth mother, who, you know, you came out of this person's body and she has this information. That's a lot of power that she has. And she will not tell me, you know, she has the information and she will not give it to me. I was angry about that. You know, it's like, I deserve to know this, you know, that's the least you can do. Just, tell me and it took 10 years for her to tell me and it also took me those years to get the nerve to pressure her it was very intimidating to be with her I mean she was tough I liked her but it took me a long time to get the nerve to say look you you know you have to tell me this and it took that so I don't know but I did like I did like her well, first of all, I feel that, and I get that. You're, I found you. The charade, in some ways, is over. <laughs> you know, the 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 curtain is lifted. Tell me, why yeah. not? Yeah, you know, I've done the work to find you. You are my mother. Tell me, I get that, and I do actually. I did get uh, in the book too. I didn't feel that you didn't like her. I, I did get though you know, the resistance that you, you know, once everything's open and you're, and you are making yourself vulnerable and, and meeting with her, which I'm sure that felt quite strange, then to continue to have her hold back was not fair. Yeah. I mean, you know, nothing's fair, but you know, she, (laughs) I know that she was afraid that her family would probably find out about me, still didn't know about me. She had a husband and five kids that didn't know about me, but I, and of course, she didn't trust me. She didn't know me. But, you know, I see why she wouldn't tell me. But and I still think she should have. So, yeah. What would you say to other birth moms who have been found? I would just suggest that they meet with them and see what their child has to say. That's all. Because... Everybody wants something different. I didn't want a family. I didn't want birthdays and Christmases. That's the last thing I wanted. But some people might want that. But I would just say to, to listen and try to be open. That's all. It's not a big thing. I mean, it is a big thing, but it's very basic. 
there's no guidebook on this stuff. So just, you know, be, be a human being, realize that, of course, it's hard. Of course, it hurts and own up to whatever it is. Accept the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so much buildup and fear about all those other things than being part of accepting the conversation, the families and the immersion and everything like that. And like you said, each case is different. Some people just like you want to know their name and who their father is. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I, I would have wanted to, to meet with her every now and then or something, but you know, that, that wasn't going to happen. But like right now, I don't know if she's alive, you know, so no. that's, that's how much I don't know, but that's hard. That's hard. Well, yeah. Your father <laughs> which is really wild, it, you know, is a Stanley Cup figure, so visible to the world, but unknown to you. But yeah. in the end, it really, I felt this type of a healing is probably the wrong word, but I did feel a resolution in your engagement with him to some degree. Am I, was I wrong in that? I don't know. I related to him. I just liked the way he was. I felt like I looked like him a little you know, and uh, I liked his manner. So that was, that was comforting. Although he, he called me two weeks later and said, I don't think I could be your father. <laughs> it's not funny, but that didn't feel good. But um, I knew he just wanted to get out of it. But I felt more of a kinship with him. And because of my history uh, with athletics, you know, because I was on all kinds of teams and used to hit everything and I love that part. <laughs> what was he? What was his nickname again? And then uh, Wild Bill, and he was Wild Bill as Nikki, and he was he had the most in the most penalties in postseason play in the NHL for one season. So he was very intense, and yeah, I I liked him. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that connection. Yeah, and I I started. In college in as a phys ed, ed major that's all I wanted to do and my my adoptive family was like what are you doing like why are you obsessed with all this and I I said I don't know and that's all I wanted to do so that made me feel like less crazy I felt oh this is where this comes from so knowing thyself right yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And your, your adoptive father, you adored, your ally. Mm-hmm. It seems like you had a great relationship with him. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God for him. He was, he was there and he was, he was a, a great guy, a steel worker. He's, he died in 1986. So a long time ago. I'm still writing about him, still writing poems about him. I feel like he's still with me all the time. So I have his, I wear his ring, this uh, black onyx ring. Oh, uh, beautiful. Yeah. With a, it has a garnet in it. It used to have a diamond, but I took it out. He's, he's everywhere, really. I have right here on my writing desk, I have his VFW hat right here. Oh, bless his heart. So yeah, he's close. And I, I don't know how I would have made it without him. He just got it. He was cool. I mean, we, we didn't talk about any of this, but he was just a real guy you know salt to the earth just yeah. yeah probably gritty just showed up every day got yeah. the job done right yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a dad like that yeah nice yeah yeah 
Philadelphia, not Pittsburgh, the wrong side of the state, according to Pittsburghians, but <laughs> a, a Philly, yeah, ship worker. Yeah. He was just, they made, they were made right then, you know, they just were. I have a poem looking for him after he died. Um, this is kind of a newer poem. This is called My Father Flying. The year after my father died, I walked around to his places, not the cemetery, but to his people the Texaco where he took his old Ford Fairlane for repair half mile from the house. I lugged two six packs of Iron City to the mechanics, Chuck just out of high school and older Joe, his round belly hanging over his belt. So big he rested it on the cars like a second body. We told stories until the beer was gone. I walked into my father's VFW, Elmer J. Zeiler, post 512, said I was my father's daughter. Good man, the old bartender said. The two slumped over vets at the bar, bobbed their heads and raised their beers. After that, I saw my father flying in the trees by the old roads, a glimpse, a wind shudder in the red maple, while everyday people kept walking behind the shopping center. A white patch in the December branches I'd pull over and look and knew he lived in the bends and curves, the familiar sky, everywhere. That was the year I looked up. In that year after, he was living everywhere. Beautiful. You're writing your poetry. When did it enter your life and what does it mean to you? I was writing all the time. I mean, I won the poetry contest in first grade. Early it, on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I needed it. I needed it as a place to go. I mean, I considered it a place to live, you know, growing up. I needed to go somewhere. And so I would climb up in the attic and shut the hatch and um, just write or go run through the backyards to the apple trees and write. I didn't know how else to survive, really. I mean, that was a place to exist and still is. You know, I still need it to survive I have you know I'm sitting here you know waiting for the podcast I have my two journals here in case I have extra time <laughs> so working on the it's everywhere it's coming out of you I love that I love a place to live you know yeah. I think for us writers I, I certainly have not reached your capacity I did not win a poetry contest in first grade but I have always needed writing as a way to center myself to put my feet on the ground yeah yeah yeah. To find my place. But you say it beautifully. One thing you wrote in the book, I had assembled huge walls of protection over the years as a way to stay alive. And adoptee needs to have a strategy from a young age, whether conscious or not. Poetry, for instance, right? A way to manage this whole of abandonment, loss, and grief. And you have done the work on yourself. I mean, you found many ways to heal. I think it's an overused term. Process. Learn to carry these realities. Can you share a little bit about what you've been through and, and been able to overcome? <laughs> that would take some time. But... <laughs> that's, a, that's the next book. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I did a lot of escaping, you know, into drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And uh, for many years, glad to have lived through that. Sex, drugs and alcohol. Uh, also another way to not be in the present tense, you know, and then uh, started therapy in 19, probably 1973. I've been in therapy forever. I needed it. And 
it just took a long time. And it took, it took me 20 years to write American Bastard, which sounds like a lot. And I wrote a book proposal in the year 2000 and then realized that I couldn't, I couldn't write the book and I needed to go, you know, go back to therapy and work on it, adoption in therapy. And I needed to um, grow more as a writer to write the book. So yeah, you can call it healing because it was definitely healing because yeah. I, I was suicidal for many years and I am lucky to be here. So I think you know this, that you know, speaking about what has happened is I didn't write the book to heal. I wrote the book to be able to say clearly what has happened and in hopes that it would be helpful to someone else because I was always looking for this book when I was uh, growing up. I was always looking for somebody to say how it was because the books on adoption I was reading did not ring true to me. And, you know, and even as an adult, I would just throw them across the room. A lot of memoirs I would just throw across the room. And when I was trying to publish American Bastard, it wasn't easy. Well, it never was easy, but no. I, <laughs> as you know. It's very hard. I wish people knew that, how <laughs> damn hard it is and how That's, stinking long it takes. Yeah. Six. Everybody's like, where's your book? I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I'll let you know when it's coming up. I'll let you know when it's coming along. It was hard to get it published. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah. I was, uh, and I I have six books of poetry, which I was much more aware of how to publish poetry books, but this nonfiction book was a whole other thing. So I went to some people who knew. I went to some poets who had published memoirs who had had great success and asked them if I could if they could refer me to their agents. And so I got a couple referrals and that went well, but everybody, these agents wanted me to write my book in a chronological fashion. You know, they said, this is very harrowing and powerful, but can you make it chronological? And I said, no, I, I really can't because I don't remember really my childhood and I don't want it to be chronological. And, you know, and it was this, conversation I had with an Irish writer, a woman who said, these these agents, are they all men? And I said, yeah, they are. Oh, and I interesting. Usually, yeah. Wow. And usually, usually I'm very aware of that. But because they were referrals, I wasn't thinking in those terms, really. And, and I thought, oh, so I went a different direction. And, and then within a year, I had interest in the book and it was published by Red Hen with a um, female judge and Kate Gale who you know is in charge of Red Hen you know director of Red Hen Press so I think I needed a woman to and I'm not saying all men <laughs> have to have chronology but that's what was happening with this book yeah I think the thing that women understand is that life doesn't go in this kind of linear order that we're always floating between the past, you know, our childhood and who we are today. We're much more fluid in that way with our identities. I don't know. That's just my take. Yeah. At least a lot of women. Yeah. Getting back to your voice, there is not a book out there that talks from this perspective and this strength of what it's like to be an adoptee. And I'm so glad that I found you because 
it really puts it out there, some of the truth that people dance around as it relates to adoption. Thank you. I was, along the way, I was encouraged to write a a welcoming introduction to the book. And I did, I did write one and then I just hated it. And I'm like, no, if I'm going to do this, I need to write it the way I need to write it. So I wrote an introduction that was more real. Yeah, I wrote the book the way I needed to write it because I thought, what's the point of any other way? You know, I was really nervous at the beginning when I was going out to do readings. I didn't know how it would be received, especially by adoptive parents. But it's it's been really good. It's been oh, really good. Good. Well, it should have a lot of success, and I'm glad that I get to share it with my listeners. And I'm so glad that I read it. It consumed me. Uh, once I started, I could not put it down. But I I'm glad that it's starting the conversation on one of the sides and perceptions or uh, takeaways of adoption in a very clear, clear way. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful work. I just love when someone's in there, like, as you are, you had to write this book. This is the book that you wanted to read. And, you know, that's what they say about books, right? That you write it. And then when it's no longer about you, it's done, (laughs) meaning it's for other people. But you're so honest and you don't, as much as there, you had huge walls of protection when it comes to this, I can feel that you're just 100% open and the truth comes out. Yeah, that is one thing that happened after writing this book which was unexpected, is that I I became more open. I mean, I feel like I was vulnerable before, but now I really am. And it also opened some doors to some past traumas that I knew about, but it, things have opened more. And I'd really like to close some of those doors, but I, I can't. Mm. You know, it is what it is, but it it did open open some things. And so it it did change me. I, I mean, I did, I feel like I got stronger and more grounded, but at the same time, it, it opened things. So it's really interesting in that way. I mean, and yeah. Are you like uh, some of my memoirist friends that when it went to print and it went out that you hid in bed for like two days, just like <laughs> with the sheets over your head? <laughs> yeah, I was terrified for a while. Yeah. Oh putting yourself out there. <laughs> is this a mistake? Yeah, but this is a mistake. Not a mistake at all. <laughs> at its core, adoption begins with loss. What Jan does so well in her writing is articulate the trauma. Like any great artist, she uses the primary lifelong pain to create something, a place of understanding, to give voice to those who question the luckiness of adoption. Ultimately, though, her work connects us to the feelings so many share, and that in itself is the gift. Until next time, stay curious and be well.